Welcome to The Dive Table. I'm Jay Gardner, and with me is Scott Bauer. He is back for our third and final episode together, and I'm excited about this one, Scott. How are you doing today? I'm doing good. How are you doing? I'm good. I, I know that you in Texas are in a, a little bit of a heat wave. Maybe a little is, is not a good word. Yeah, uh, a big heat wave. I think it's 105 right now. Oh. Not too bad. It's only uh, six o'clock. Yeah, it's six o'clock at night, and it's one hundred and five degrees. Yeah, that's that's always. I mean, I can. I think I can legitimately say that I lived there for five years. So I went through, I think, five summers straight, and I did look forward to some of the summers, which was weird. After the first one, I was like, okay, summer mm-hmm. means something. But then I think by the time it gets to like you know September, late September, early October, you're just like. I'm done. Like, when is it a breeze actually going to happen? <laughs> so <laughs> you're in it yeah. for the long haul. And I hear that Texas is breaking all kinds of records on it is. when it comes to heat. It's crazy. We we like to be by the water, though. So it's usually not the biggest deal. I think um, uh, so we're on the river yesterday. And I think it wasn't until maybe 8 o'clock when I felt like I was no longer in danger of getting sunburned. That's basically what it's like right now. Because it's at the points where it gets dark at nine o'clock, and um, daybreak is probably what seven, seven or eight, maybe, maybe even earlier. But um, yeah, it's, you it's don't pretty, know. You're not up before the sun. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm the wrong person to ask about that. <laughs> yeah, it's you, so this this episode is sponsored by Sunbum or Coppertone. <laughs> <Yeah>. or- <laughs> Not really. They're not really sponsors to you listeners out there. But hey, if you want to be, great. Yeah. Uh, no, no, it's, it's, not here, real, it's not a real podcast until you're sponsored by Manscaped. That, there you go. Manscaped. There you go. I, I, my goal is to get sponsored by NASA, which will never happen. But hey, we, you know, why not? They should be sponsoring yeah. things. I think the U.S. Postal Service is big on sponsoring podcasts. I don't know why. But, Are they really? Uh, yeah, I don't know why. It's whatever. I've heard a, a lot of podcasts that have a U.S. postal advertisement in them. So anyway, but hey, I'm excited you're here. And for this episode, we wanted to focus on kind of expedition photography. And what do we mean by expedition? Expedition means you're planning on going out to somewhere maybe you're exploring uh, or maybe it's someplace that you haven't been or maybe it's someplace you've been, but you're planning something specifically for photography. And so whether you're doing exploration or you're going someplace you haven't been and you're still doing photography, the idea behind planning for and executing that plan to capture the photos that you want or that you need for that expedition, I thought would be, we were talking about would be a really cool episode. So I'm excited to get into this one and hopefully cover some of the bases, talk about some of the expeditions you and I have done together, some we've done separately and try to kind of unpack this topic. So anything to add here? Are you ready to jump in? No, no, I think that's great. I think the only thing I'd like to add is um, an interesting part about that is it it doesn't even have to be a quote-unquote expedition. You know, it's not like it's something that has to be um, sponsored or, or, you know, paid for by a grant. It could just be you're going on vacation. You have this idea in mind. You're going on this dive trip, and, you know, you want to get a cool photo of your buddy or you in this cool place. And, you know, you have this idea in mind of achieving this, uh, this photograph that you want to bring back with you and it's something you could print or share, or, you know, what, whatever it takes, um, what, whatever you want to bring back. Cool. Yeah, exactly. That's well said. Well said. Well, let's get into this one. 
a podcast for scuba divers everywhere. Take your seat at the dive table with your hosts, Jay Gardner and Scott Bauer. All right, Scott, so we're talking expedition photography, but before we get rolling too far, it's been a minute since we last talked. So you have some changes and some things that, that you've been doing. Um, so do you want to share with the, the Scubaverse out there? And, and I'm happy to share as well. It's my first episode back in a while. So I'll, I'll tell everyone what I've been up to. But go ahead. You, the, the mic is yours. I what, think, what are you- uh, yeah, you're right. I think since we last spoke, I went to Rotan. Uh, pretty amazing trip. Really loved it. Um, and then after that, I've been doing a lot of diving in the, uh, the flower garden banks, which is off the coast of Texas. It's a really healthy coral reef. Uh, it's, if you're familiar with Galveston, Texas is it's, it's a hundred miles South, um, off the coast of Galveston, right at the edge of the continental shelf where you have, um, a series of salt domes that, that push pretty close to the surface of the ocean. And on those salt domes, it, it's capped with uh, with a pretty legitimate coral reef. Um, they say the coral cover is fifty percent, fifty percent coral cover. In a lot of areas, it's going to feel like it's more than that. Uh, it's really healthy, really cool to see. It to me personally, I enjoy going there almost more than a lot of places I've been to in the Caribbean. Uh, it, it's a lot healthier than a lot of places you'd see in in more heavily trampled areas. And um, there's also another area. Um, slightly closer to shore that you you typically go to on these trips called Stetson Bank has a lot less coral but way more way more animal encounters. It's it's a very cool place, very unique, and um, yeah, it's it, it's been a fun summer so far. I've had had a lot of trips, um, but yeah, that's that's basically what I've been up to since uh, since the last episode podcast. Whatever. And you've moved, whatever as you well, call right? these. You- <laughs> yeah, the episode, yeah, or, yeah. <laughs> or show or whatever you want to say. Yeah. And you also moved. So so you you've suffered the yeah, moving. I did move. uh, yeah, I moved down, down the street though. So, yeah. <laughs> not 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 that big of a deal. It's it was a pain. I don't ever want to move again, but um yeah, I'm trying to buy a house. So I moved to a place that's a little bit cheaper, save a little bit more money. Um and the only thing that's demotivating me from buying a house is the idea of moving again. Yeah, yeah, I know. I know. I just went through it, but I moved halfway across the country, quite literally. So yeah. I, I know that pain. I, I'm like, every day I'm like, this is, this is, yeah, that's a little bit rougher than when I went to because I'm only six minutes away from, <laughs> from where yeah. I used to live. So <laughs> I was I moving one rug at a time. Does the yeah, rug tie one... the whole room together? Exactly. You know, I yeah, see it's that the rug, easiest way to do it. You yeah, don't have to live out of boxes for a few weeks afterwards. It's, it's definitely the best way to do it. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny. Cause, uh, I, I actually moved once when I was in just out of college with my roommate, we moved quite literally across the street. Like it was like, I think the address was four zero five two and we moved to, or, or that was the new address. And the old one was like four zero five seven. So it was literally <laughs> across the street. Um, I mean, literally you could throw a, a, a stick or a stone across the street and you'd hit the new house. And you it's thought amazing. like, oh, this will be super easy. Like this is no big deal moving something like this. And actually I found it r- pretty difficult because you, it's not like you packed up boxes to do that. And it's not like yeah. I had a whole bunch of stuff at that time anyways, but you just took like a thousand mini, mini trips. And it was like, no, you know, no, that, that, like that's what happens by paper yeah. cuts. The, yeah. uh, the advantages you're right up front. It's more work. The advantages in the long run, um, you don't have to do all the unpacking. Yeah, that's a good point. So you, you, you don't, you don't have to live in that mess for, for months after you move. 
Yeah. And and did your scuba stuff find a a good closet? It was the first or... thing to be moved. It, it it has its own room now. It has its own bathroom. <laughs> um, <laughs> I have a stand up I have a stand up shower that that's dedicated to wetsuits. And it's pretty cool. Nice. I get home, I just hang the wetsuit in the shower, turn the shower on, it gets a good rinse. Pretty good setup. Nice. And then your your tanks and your regs have a nice pillow top bed. And they're in you the know, bathroom too, down. you know, it's, it's like a huge <laughs> double sink in there. So I have a lot of counter space and all the regs and everything. It's all, it's all nice and neatly organized. It's, it's the strangest bathroom that anyone's probably ever seen. That I, I, I think you should post some Insta photos of that. I <laughs> think everyone's going to want to see that. Actually. Like, yeah. here's my scuba bathroom. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'll post it on, I'll post, post it on your, your page. Okay. Yeah. I want to see those photos. Yeah, I'll That'd send it awesome. over later tonight. Yeah, and I'll I'll give a quick update for me because it's been a minute since I've been um, on the show. Well, the show is you know episodes have come out, so yeah, I, we moved trying to get settled. You know, it's a big process as uh, you know we've talked about before. But I actually got sick, and I got really sick for a little bit, and it triggered some stuff, other stuff, which we'll talk about later in a different episode. But I was down and out for like three weeks straight. Um, and ended up in, in urgent care for a little bit and came back and, uh, finally I'm feeling, starting to feel better, which is great. And so we've taken a pause on the show, uh, obviously, cause it's not good to uh, record from urgent care. So we, we took a, we took a pause from the show. And unfortunately that means for my diving, it's been, uh, very limited all the way to my pool almost. Um, I still have snuck in little pool sessions and things for myself, but it's been tough to kind of trust to get out on a boat, spend a day actually out diving and come back. And so I'm really looking forward to, um, finally feeling better. Like I said, today I'm, I'm better than I was yesterday. Every day is getting better now, which is great. And then I've got a bunch of stuff coming up starting next week. So we're, I gotta be fully ready to go, but we've got, uh, actually four, courses going back to back to back over the course of two weeks coming up next week, um, which is super exciting. So uh, I think this episode will be published actually um, at the beginning of this. So July, uh, I think it is 23rd. Yes, 23rd. We kick off uh, UTD overhead protocols here in San Diego. So that's the precursor to um, cave and rec penetration. It's kind of the line, no vis line, all those those protocols that exist for the overhead environments. Super exciting. And then right after that, we're doing an essentials of tech class. So we've got a bunch of students coming out for that, which is a awesome team oriented. It's kind of the the personal skills plus team uh, element of team diving. Right after that, we're doing an IDC, which we're hubbing out of my new house because we've got a pool and get the location for it, which should be a lot of fun. So we've got some instructor candidates coming out. Um, you're going to have some new instructors with UTD, which is awesome. And then right after that, uh, I'm actually teaching a technical side mount class. So we'll be doing a, a whole side mount thing. So it's two weeks straight. And in between that, we're doing a big party here at the house. So uh, anyone that's listening to this, if you would like to come, if you're local to Southern California or shoot, if you feel like getting on a plane, there are spots still open in these courses. Um, so you're, if you want to join, reach out to me. But also the party will be July 31st um, here at my place. You are more than welcome to join us out there in the Scubaverse. 
And I think it's at seven o'clock and here in San Diego. And we're going to just kind of hang out, have some, you know, good Mexican food and some wine and beer and, and other libations and sit around the fire pit and go night swimming and sit in the spa, whatever one of people want to do, but just a chance to hang out. So lots upcoming. So I'm, I'm getting healthier and we've been planning this stuff and I'm super excited for next week to come. So just a, just an update from me as to why we've been off the air and how we're getting things stepped back up at this point. All right. So with that out of the way, people want to learn about expedition photography. I didn't even know that you were sick like that. I had no idea. Yeah. Yeah. I know. I know. I I'm, I'm really bad. I I don't know about other people, how they handle it. I'm really bad. I, when I get sick like that, I go into like, uh, I don't recluse mode a little bit. Like I don't, I don't really talk, tell anyone that I'm sick or I, I shouldn't do that, but I do. <laughs> like, I'm like, you know, people are like texting me like, Hey, what's going on? I'm like, Oh yeah, I'll be back, you know, in a couple of weeks. And then I have to explain later when I'm like, I haven't got back to them in a couple of days. Like, sorry, man, I'm, I've been really sick. And then everyone has like, why didn't you tell me? I was like, I'm sorry. Like, I just, I'm not open in that way for whatever reason when I get that sick. That makes sense. Yeah. 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 I have to get better about that. But anyway, so I've been kind of, you know, producer Daniel was like, what is going on? And I was, I had to tell him everything is going on and he, he, you know, cause he's, he's on top of things. And, um, so yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm all right. It's, it's a, it's a, I'll just say what it is. Like I have, um, a thing that I was diagnosed with, gosh, my junior year of college. So I don't want to date myself, but it's been a while. (laughs) (laughs) It's been a while. I've been living with this thing. It's a hereditary. It's just part of my genes uh, that came up and, and out at that point. Um, and it's called ulcerative colitis. So uh, oh, yeah, I promised yeah, yeah. myself from this, this I would start talking about it because um, I've never talked about it publicly. But it's uh, ulcerative colitis, which essentially is an autoimmune disease that affects you know, your, your digestive system. And uh, it can be extremely painful and debilitating and all those sorts of things. And, uh, and so, yeah, you have to take maintenance medication for it. And what happens for me is everyone has different triggers. So there's not like a single trigger, but it seems to me my triggers are either stress, which moving is part of it, but I don't think it was this, this time, or it's when I get sick with something else like a cold or something like that, which of course I have three young kids who go to school. Like it's just, only always, imagine, someone's yeah. always sick, you know? So this time I caught something. And I got sick. And then at the end of that, it was like a really bad cold. At the very end of that, because I'd been diving a lot and under the water and all that stuff, I got a little inner ear infection. Um, and that seemed to trigger the, the flare-up of the, of the UC mm-hmm. because obviously your immune system's you know, fighting the, the cold and fighting the infection in your ear. And it triggers the rest of it. And so those maintenance meds are no longer sufficient because it's my immune system attacking myself. Right. Um, so long story short, it's, it can, it can be, uh, you know, anywhere between mild and severe, obviously. And in this case, it was a, it was a pretty tough one where, like I said, they put me in the, in the urgent care for a little bit. And, um, what's crazy is I had my first CAT scan with contrast. I don't Have you ever had a CAT scan before? No, no. With, with Super contrast, interesting. what does that mean? So they shoot radioactive material into you to then when they take the photos to see how that stuff flows through you. Oh, wow. And it was the weirdest feeling because they, uh, you know, they try to prep you for it, but they basically say, okay, here comes the, 
the dye, um, which is radioactive material, Do you going drink into it? your body. How, uh, no, they inject it into you through or? an IV. Yeah, oh, through weird. an IV. Okay, okay. But then, like, as soon as it, they did it, I like my throat started getting super hot. And then, you know, sorry, kids out there, but then my butt started getting really hot. It's like, whoa, like, felt like I was sitting on like a heating pad for a minute and then it was gone. And so it was, it was the weirdest thing. I've never had a CT. I've never had those things before. So it was a, a wow, new experience. Yeah. But the funniest thing about the whole thing was, you know, that you have to hold your breath for some period of time while they're doing it. And like, the, you know, the prompts come from the machine. So there's this big old, basically donut looking machine that they put you in the middle of and the prompts, they turn on the machine and the prompts come from the machine. And it was the funniest thing because the, whoever the recording was on the CT scan that I had was like super rude. It was like, hold your breath. <laughs> like, what the heck? And then you're holding your breath. And of course, when you're holding your breath, for whatever reason, your brain just like, you know, gets focused and you're like, you know, really attuned to the next instruction to when you can breathe. And then like, as soon as they was ready for to let you breathe, the voice would come back on and be like, you can breathe now. <laughs> You're like, geez. How, you how long was your breath a bad day. Oh, I don't know. Probably 10 seconds, 30 okay, seconds. So it, yeah, yeah. It's not a long so time. So we're not talking about doing a free dive here. It's not like you have no. to do a breathe up. And- <laughs> no. No. But still, you want someone to come back and be like, now you can take a breath. Like a really calming voice, you know, or something like, like you want brash. this British lady to be like, go ahead and breathe. It's okay. You know, like instead uh, of like, you can breathe now. I mean, <laughs> the way it should have been finished, you can breathe now, jerk. It's how it felt like it was being said. So anyway, that's that's what's been going on with me. Like I said, I'm feeling better. You have to get kind of on on a treatment. And um and once they dial that in right, then you start to feel better and it takes a couple of weeks and, and you recover. But I have a flare, it's called a flare up, which is a wonderful, you know, phrase for it, but it's a flare up and I get them, you know, once a year and it, it does affect hmm. my diving because like, I, I had missed two boat dives um, that were scheduled for me for this whole thing because I can't imagine being out on the boat and having that pain and, and uncomfortableness and all that kick in. And being so far away from shore and being able to, you know, be, or even being on a dive. So it's not that you can't dive with UC. It's that mentally you're kind of going, I don't think I want to put myself in that position. Mm-hmm. Um, and I have to be careful about how much you exert yourself as you're on the, on the mend. If, you know, my, my natural tendency, as soon as I feel a little bit better is like push, 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 push. And I've had to learn over the years, like that kicks it, makes it longer. You know, rather than if I just take some time to to breathe and rest. So it's been a it's been a rough couple of more than a couple of weeks. And finally, like I said, this last four or five days have been on the right treatment, feeling better, and looking forward to finally being back in the water and uh and getting to dive. So yeah, sorry I didn't share all that with you and sorry out there in the scooverse. That's where I've been. Uh, and now you know, and it's probably TMI, too much information oh, shared. And uh now I wish I didn't know Jay. I know exactly. I'm just kidding. Exactly. And we're holding everybody back from this great topic of expedition photography. But I, I promised myself I would talk about it because I've never talked about it publicly. I've never really shared it. And yet it's something that a lot of people have and deal with and or other things people deal with. And I think, you know, um, I just kind of promised myself this time around, like if I get the opportunity, I'll share. And whatever that means, people think less of me. Okay. If they, if they 
want to talk about it okay, if they laugh behind my back okay. But it's always been one of those things where I've been mentally a little guarded from it because it's it feels like something's wrong with me. But it's nothing I did. And that, that's the thing that made me so mad about it when I was first diagnosed is like, it's not, I get it. If I fell off a you know, cliff because I was cliff diving, which I did a lot in college and I broke my leg and I had to walk with a limp for the rest of my life, you know, or whatever, you know, I took a bunch of recreational drugs and it damaged my, me to a point, you know, all these other things with this, it, it was like, I didn't do anything. It just was part of my genes and then it happened and now I have to live with it. And it made me so mad because it's like, I'm okay with a self-inflicted thing that I know where it came from, you know, but this whole thing of like, it just, those are the cards you were dealt and there's nothing you can do about it made me so mad for a long time. And then had to figure out how to kind of reconcile that and, you know, experimented with lots of different treatments and found, you know, there's just, it is what it is. And I have to reckon with, with it with myself. And so I said, this first time I share publicly, a little worried about how that's going to go, but hey, we'll see. And uh, I'm sure, you know, goes from there. I don't think you have anything to worry about. I, I, I appreciate you being being vulnerable and sharing that. Um, a, a good friend of mine that I grew up with actually went through the same thing too. Uh, and uh, yeah, he uh, he had to get part of his, uh, maybe this is uh, TMI, but he had to get part of his uh, large intestine removed. Um, yeah. Not sure the details of why, uh, but yeah, it, it caused all sorts of complications and um, he still lives with the the side effects um, uh, of going through that now. Yeah, it, it, that's the crazy part. Is it's, it's curable with that if you remove the pieces of the intestine that cause the problem. Mm-hmm. But then, like you say, there's other complications and considerations that come with that. So it's one of those weird things where it's you know ulcerative colitis and Crohn's. Um, Crohn's disease affects the entire intestine, right? Or, or, or um, colon as well. Um, whereas ulcerative colitis affects, you know, a part of it and you just left sided or right sided. And so th- these all live in the same family of things. Um, and yeah, like I- I've had friends that have full blown Crohn's and have had to go through that. I have other friends that have UC and, you know, again, it's varying degrees of severity for everybody. And, um, lucky for me, I guess, you know, it's, it's mostly under control except for, it seems like once a year, twice a year flares up. And usually it's triggered by one of those two things, stress or, or, uh, you know, getting sick or something like that. So it, so it's not predictable, but it's, you know, at least like somewhat under control for me versus other people. It can be, you know, really hard to get that under control. So in some ways I'm blessed that, you know, that I, I have the version of it that I have, uh, in other ways, it still, you know, can knock me off for two, three weeks at a time. And, mm-hmm. um, and that, and with my, the way that I like my lifestyle and the things that we kind of have going on, all the different plates that are spinning, it's really hard to get knocked off for two or three weeks. Um, like everybody else, I'm sure, you know, things are going and moving without you. So, uh, it's tough to, it's tough to come back and, um, and settle in. And then it's tough also to say, you know, Hey, look, like I need, I need a minute, you know, and here's why. And mm-hmm. I've never been good at saying like, I need a minute because I'm sick and I need to deal with it. And cause I always feel like it's a cop out. I can push through, I can push through. I don't want to let anyone down. And this time around it was like, I can't, I just need to break. 
Otherwise, it's going to be bad for, for months rather than weeks. So anyway, there's the UC episode. Scott, you didn't know you signed up for that, but there's 20 minutes of, of spilling my heart there. And we'll, uh, I'm sure Daniel will edit all of this out and say like, well, you know, you should have talked about Brought to you by but... high contrast uh, cat scans. <laughs> With a rude lady. Or no, it was, a, yeah, it was a rude lady. It was a rude lady this time. Um, yeah, the, at the cat scan. So anyways, speaking of cat scans, those are photos. So they are photos, yeah. Photos. <laughs> they're not underwater. They're they're internal. This was all planned to have the good transition from the cat scan into the photos, right? It was perfect, perfect transition point. But yeah, so let's set this up a little bit. So like you said in the beginning, with expeditions, it's not just like we're exploring something. Although you and I have done that work um, and, and planned for it. It can also be just planning for a photography trip, right? Or, or try, planning for a specific photograph but i think maybe there's a separation in in the exploration side i think in one of the first episodes we did together we talked about documenting or documentary photos so it's something like you know you're going to dive get in the water and you're going to take images of the dam the condition of the dam for example that's there right and and that takes a level of planning on how you're going to execute that and that's a that's a very technical straightforward example right it could be, hey, we've never been in this location and we want to capture what it looks like and what the, you know, the, the floor looks like, what kind of life, sea life or, or marine life is actually in there. Um, what are the key features? So I think about like the Frio thing, that canyon was really the only feature of the whole thing other than <laughs> yeah. riverbed, right? But, yeah. uh, but okay, you, you got some, captured some images of that and to show what it's like under the water there. Or you're trying to kind of like people do dive planning guides. So they want to capture the key features of a particular dive site. And then there's kind of the, that, that's more the exploration side of, of the world. Um, then there's the, I want to capture a great photo of X, Y, and Z. I'm do- doing this dive. Uh, let's say you're going down to, to Playa and you're going to do, you know, the bull shark season, which is coming up in, you know, November. And you want to capture some awesome images of bull sharks. That's that's your goal. Um, that's also considered an expedition. You're going out for that purpose, right? And you're going to plan for that. Um, but there's a level of of difference in the sense that some of that is more predictable. We know the conditions. We know kind of what it's going to be like. We know the animal we want to capture, right? Maybe we're doing macro work. We want to capture, you know, tiny jellyfish or whatever it would be. Versus the the exploration side is more the unknown. How do we plan for what we don't know what we're going to see? So I think that's kind of setting up, you know, when we say expedition photography, it includes all of that stuff. Um, But I think there is kind of this separation between we know what we're getting ourselves into and what we want to capture versus we have no idea what we're getting ourselves into. And we're not, we have to be prepared for either everything or, or nothing, right? How do we, how do we plan for those things? So yeah. Curious your thoughts. Like, let's maybe let's maybe tackle the the easy one first, which is I want to go out and I want to capture this shot, right? And the popular shots right now are like the what do you call them? The halfway on the surface, halfway under the water. Yeah, shot. yeah. Over over under shots. Yeah. Over uh, under. There we go. Yeah. The over under. I've seen some really interesting ones. Um, so let's talk about that. How do you plan? Like, I want to capture X shot, an over under shot. Uh, you know perfect picture of a of a pregnant bull shark or you know i want to capture the the perfect you know shot of 
uh, my teammates on a line, you know, doing a, doing a deco stop, whatever it might be. Mm -hmm. Um, how do you plan for that? What do you take? You know, what are kind of the conditions that you're trying to create for that photo? Yeah. So ideally for an over under shot, you're going to want the biggest dome port possible. Um, and if you're listening, you might not know what a dome port is. It's, uh, it's like a glass, just imagine a glass dome. Um, it's, it's typically for any sort of wide angle lens as opposed to a really tight telephoto lens. So wide angle, you know, is exactly what it sounds like on the other end of the spectrum. You have telephoto, which is more of uh, zoomed in, um, but uh, yeah, so if you're shooting an over-under shot, you're probably going to want to go as wide as possible with as big of a dome port um, as possible as well. You know, most people have six-inch dome ports, and then maybe they might have an eight-inch or even a 10-inch on hand if they wanted to specifically shoot over-under shots that day. If you try to dive uh, with your 10-inch dome port, you can, you can pull it off, but it adds a lot of positive buoyancy, um, becomes hard to manage, causes a lot of drag, so... If you're in an environment that has a lot of current or rough conditions, that uh, that big dome port could actually become uh, a pretty big burden. And which brings me, brings me to my other point, too. So if you're shooting over under shots, the conditions you're looking for are very, very calm. Um, that's what helps you get that nice, pretty looking waterline uh, that's going to be right in the middle of that dome. And that's what's going to give you that that image that you're looking for. That's going to be half underwater and half above, above the water. Um, so lighting wise, uh, you're probably not going to want to ever do any sort of shot like that midday. Uh, usually um, you want the sun to be behind you. Um, that way the sun's pointing away from you, illuminating whatever clouds are on the horizon in a nice, you know, nice pretty manner that doesn't look harsh, you know, if you have too much, if you have too much lighting on top and not enough lighting below, um, that can that can lead to some issues, and uh, that's why you also want really bright lights with you as well. So you know, uh, the sun will be illuminating the top side, and your artificial lighting that should be attached to your rig will be illuminating the underside. So that's that's kind of the basic equipment loadout um, for uh, for a good over under shot. With that, with the distance that you have with that dome port. So you're not necessarily, you're trying to capture a pretty wide angle cause you're getting, wide, let's say, yeah. you know, the boat, the water line, the diver or whatever below it. Yeah. So how do you, how do you, I mean, are the lights strong enough that you're bringing to light the underwater side? Can so they reach that far? How does it, so, and to answer your question with, with these wide angle lenses, you'd be surprised. You have to get really close to the subject to make it even come close to filling the frame. Hmm. Um, if you have a wide angle lens and you, you have it inside of a dome port, um, you'll notice if you ever watch somebody take photographs like this, say for example, they swim, up, swim up to a grouper and try to take like a portrait of that grouper with their wide angle lens. It is almost like the mouth of the grouper is about to touch the dome port. They're pretty, pretty close. That's typically what you call a close focus or a, yeah, yeah. Close focus, wide angle. And same, same applies for these, these over under shots. So if you're, if you have your uh, your teammates that are doing their deco stop, you know, 15 feet below the surface, obviously you can't get right up to them. But, you know, they're, they're just going to be a part of the scene. Um, they might be illuminated by your lights in kind of a minimal way. Your lights will probably just be kind of filling in some shadows um, that you could bring up later on in post. Um, but, uh, yeah, it's 
It is, um, that's a challenge. That That's definitely a challenge with, with your wide angle lenses. Um, if you're not right up on the subject, they're going to be pretty small in the, in, in the frame. Yeah, it's interesting. And also from a lighting perspective, I know that when you're planning for some of these, there's also a lot of, I don't know if it's new, but it's, it's, I would say it's more emerging, at least from my view of actually lighting the environment. So you're taking lights and placing them in different places. Mm-hmm. So I've seen this a lot in caves, but it also applies in other, other areas as well. We're actually placing lights strategically to light different pieces that then get captured in that wide angle shot. So I think it's super interesting that it's not just the lighting that's on your rig, but there are actual environmental lights that are getting placed and, and purposefully, right. And, and different places and different um, intensities at different angles to then light up the environment or, or the rest of what's ever in that shot. And to bring those things uh, at least into somewhat of the of the actual composition of the photo, which I think is really cool. I mean, that takes a lot of planning and thought, um, and I think probably a lot of trial and error, depending on the uh, the environment that you're you're doing. But that's another way that I've seen some divers that are pretty serious about their photography approach lighting, because lighting is so important when it comes to to your photos. Absolutely. Yeah. And that, that would be the best way to do a shot like what you described, to be honest. You would, uh, what we've done things where we've had, uh, you know, divers use their, their, their canister lights that they have mounted to their hand and they just illuminate their body with that light and it kind of goes vice versa like that. That, that typically works. Um, but what you're talking about too, placing lights off camera that are not attached to the, the main rig, if, if you have the time to plan that out, that's the type of stuff that's really fun to do. And that's, that's going to give you the best results. Um, I know, um, uh, a, a friend of mine, when, when we dove in the the missile silo uh, a few months ago, he took a really cool shot um, where he put a strobe, he tied a strobe um, facing behind the diver. He tied it to the back of her uh, back mounted doubles um, facing away from her, basically facing towards her fins. And there was like a, there's like a shed underwater inside that, uh, inside that missile silo and it had all this cool looking structure on it, some corrugated aluminum or steel or whatever it was. Um, so what happened was when he took, when he took the shot of her, he was facing her with his camera and with his two strobes mounted on his camera. When he took that shot, of course, his strobes kind of filled in, um, uh, the features on her. So you can see what she looks like, but the strobe that was mounted to her was turned up as bright as possible and illuminated the entire background. So you, now you have this like really cool looking backlighting. And it's, it's a really cool effect. You see that a lot in caves as well. It's a really good way to take a photograph of a diver in a cave. And that a strobe that's mounted on the diver does a really good job of just illuminating um, the, uh, the features of that cave. You know, Because that's probably one of the hardest things to do. I don't have a whole lot of experience uh, doing cave photography because I'm not a cave diver. Um, but based yeah. on the different images that I've looked at uh, of people that are doing that thing, that seems to be the best result is... Uh, you know, taking a lot of time like that, like what you said, to, to place lights around different features. And um, especially, especially if you have, you know, multiple, multiple lights that you could place in different places. And there's maybe a feature in the cave that you want to light up in a specific way, because they're obviously going to look more flattering, uh, lit up from one angle versus another angle based on those features. And it takes a lot of trial and error, I'm sure, and a lot of planning. So is that strobe... Uh, connected to 
like is it triggering off of the 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 shutter or is you it know, just kind of strobing became, all the time i think what he has is um that strobe has a, a a sensor on it and it detects the flash uh from the strobes that are connected to the camera got it so when it detects that flash it it fires it off got it got it interesting yeah because i was curious if that's because obviously on the surface mm-hmm. you can set up as many lights as you want and they can be remotely triggered. Yeah. Right, that's through, the way my frequency. Yeah. When, when they're not underwater, I have Godox strobes that, that communicate with Wi-Fi. <laughs> you know, that's right, not going right, to work exactly. underwater. Yeah. Yeah. But, that, but underwater, I mean, you, there are transmitters, right? So you can transmit information from one source to another source, right? So you, you've got a lot of these air integration transmitters and receivers. Like for example, you know, if you're diving shear water gear, and, uh, you know, so your, your Perdix can pick up an AI, right, that is transmitting data from the first from stage buddy. and that transmitter to, <laughs> from your buddy. You can actually, <laughs> if you set it up, you could actually transmit from multiple. Like, I've heard that before and I'm not endorsing this at all, but I've just heard like, <laughs> you know, parents that have kids that dive want to like monitor their their kids gas it's like you know just swim up and grab the spg come on you know but but if you i guess if you're that that point you know and they say can i put a transmitter and then have that transmit to my computer and to me i just think like oh my gosh like you already have so many other things going on at in your mind at that point like making (laughs) sure which tank is which like you know monitoring the gas i mean maybe it's not that hard but I've heard of people doing that. Um, well, so, I know a couple that yeah. does that, but they, you know they're always only diving single tank. Um, but they yeah, yeah. they can see each other's gas, and they're yeah, just diving on shallow reefs and stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so it's interesting when it comes to photography. Like, have you seen any of that technology where you're actually having strobes fire based on transmission, not based on flash? It's, it's pretty simple. A lot of strobes, even like strobes that aren't meant for underwater, uh, a lot of strobes have that already built into them. It's just a little sensor, and you can set them up to be what what they call slaves. Uh, it's where when it you know detects a flash, it'll it, it itself will fire in that instance. It works better um, uh, with Wi-Fi though, because you have a little controller and you can set them all up. Um, that's what I have, but it's for top side, like I said. Um, the underwater stuff, I haven't mermaids. seen anything like that. I, I know Keldan, <laughs> uh, which are like constant video lights. They're not strobes. Uh, Keldan has uh, lights that can be controlled remotely. Um, so you underwater? can place them all over. Yeah, you can place them all over the cave, wow. and you can, can you know control them remotely somehow. No idea how it works, um, but uh, I know that's what uh, Natalie from Under the Under the Jungle uses. Yeah, no, very cool. Yeah, I, I, like I said, I'm I'm a dunce when it comes to photography, so mm-hmm. I get to learn, you know, alongside of you uh, or from you. That's interesting. yeah. And, okay. and myself, I don't have a whole lot of experience shooting with uh, strobes to begin with, much less multiple strobes. I, I use video lights. That's pretty much what I've always done, and that's for me is as simple as turning it on, setting it down, <laughs> and swimming away from it. I don't have any sort of remote <laughs> control, you know. I, I'm pretty basic as far as uh, gear like that is concerned. Now, is there a reason for that? Is it is it money? Uh, <laughs> money. Oh, money. <laughs> money. Yeah, yeah. These 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 Keldan lights that I was talking about earlier. I mean, these things are like in excess of two thousand dollars, maybe t- even twenty eight hundred dollars each. In some cases, wow. they're they're pretty pricey. Yeah, I think I think you look at a diver with like a uh, awesome photography rig and lights. 
and a rebreather. And you go like, <laughs> man, <laughs> there's like $100,000 of swing, swing fast. Oh uh, yeah, exactly. Like, which, which again, there's no knock on that at all. I think like it's over time, you know, you, you build your, your kit out. But I think one of the things that has kept me away from photography, other than, you know, an episode, the first episode we did together, if, if I don't enjoy editing the, uh, you know, the videos, then I probably will never get into it. But I think it's also been like, okay, do I want a photography rig or do I want a rebreather? It's like, I want a rebreather first. So you probably only want so much money. Yeah. I have. Yeah. yeah, exactly. <laughs> or, or do I want, you know, my scooter, which hopefully comes in a couple of weeks, you know, like, um, so it's kind of like the prioritization of limited cash plus what do I want to spend that cash on? Um, so yeah, I've, I've seen a couple of those divers who are just like, Whoa, that's a lot of, <laughs> that's a lot of cash walking by there. Like, man, that's a lot of gear. Um, that yeah. that's awesome. To put this into contrast, when I've shot with multiple lights, I use these, uh, these, uh, really bright dive lights that are meant for shooting video. They're, they have a really wide, really wide beam. And that's what you want for a video or photo. If you're using video lights to shoot photos, you can do that. And that's what I've always done. Cause I, I like to have the option of doing both in one dive. You know, I, I can see. take a photo. I, my video lights will light it up just fine, but I can also shoot video. I have that option. Of course, your video lights will never be as bright as strobes. Um, so you just have to get really bright video lights and kind of compromise. Um, yeah. But I've found these really cheap ones on Amazon. This sounds terrible. Uh, I'm, they're, they're only $60 each. Wow. And they're about 20,000 lumens. Um, they don't burn for very long, but they'll get you through a few photos. So, it, you know, they're so cheap, you can just order a handful of them and, you know, you can stage those everywhere that you need to. And it works pretty well for that. Now, on my actual rig, I have better lights, um, but I, I don't like to mix the good quality LED lights with the the cheap ones from Amazon. So, you know, you're, you're getting, uh, you, you'll notice, you'll notice in the, um, you know, after you edit everything in post, but. Yeah, like so one side of someone's face will be brighter than yeah, the other side yeah, like type a different shade of yeah, different colors slightly, you know, and yeah. maybe everybody doesn't notice it. I I notice it and it bothers me, so I just like to make yeah. sure whatever I'm using it it all matches. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, there's, and that's where probably you you get some uh, some brand loyalty from from photographers is, is exactly that matching mm-hmm. stuff. Is I'm using X light, so I have to buy another X light, and it's funny. It's it's the same thing as a lot of things. So it's like Google home versus Apple home versus Alexa, right? It's like, yeah. it seems like everyone's one or you don't mix those things, you know, <laughs> like, because they, yeah, they, no, you, that's you, weird. You, yeah. 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 So, um, and unfortunately we, we had, we went a long time ago. This is a total side bar, but we went a long time ago. We switched over to Google pixels because Google had come out with this thing called Google Fi, which was their network. And I was traveling a ton for work at the time internationally. And so I would literally with my Apple phone, I would land and I would turn off my phone. I put it in airplane mode because you instantly get hit with roaming and data and all this. You just, your phone was useless unless you had Wi-Fi. And I remember there was one time where, you know, I was looking for this meeting place we were supposed to be at and la la la. And it's so frustrating not to have access to your phone, any, anything without Wi-Fi. And I was so desperate that I saw this like free Wi-Fi with purchase from a McDonald's. I think it was in Australia in Sydney. So we <laughs> went in and bought a thing of French fries, a small French fries to get the Wi-Fi code. 
and the Wi-Fi didn't work and I still couldn't find a map to get to the meeting. I was like an hour and a half late to this meeting. It was a disaster. So I got home from that trip and I'm like, we have to solve this problem. And Google Fi had come out, was just new at this point. And they'd come out with this whole thing where they're going to you know, put weather balloons up and rotating through the atmosphere. You're never going to be without service. It's basically the same price for data everywhere in the world. And after a hundred bucks, you pay for data in a month, the rest of it's free. I was like, this sounds too good to be true. One caveat was you have to switch to Android. And it was like super hard for me to make that switch. So we had everything else, Apple. So we made the switch years ago and now we're switched all the way over to pixels, right? And pixel phones and Google home and everything's kind of Google now. And now we want to switch back to Apple and we're like, yeah, but that one switch to iPhone, you know, because we were ready for that. Um, because all our friends and, you know, FaceTime and family and all that stuff was so much easier that way. That one switch triggers a thousand other switches of how we've automated our house and things like that. <laughs> so anyway, it's the same, same thing oh, with I photography, it, lighting, yeah. or anything else, you know, it's, it's. And for me, know. I'm, I'm 100% Apple just because all my computers are Apple. So I want my phones and I want the tablets and everything. Of course, I use a lot of Adobe, which, you know, works pretty well on, on the iMacs and uh, the MacBook Pros. So. I think that's why I've always gone Apple. Are you part of the creative cloud now? Creative yeah. suite? That <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. The, that, that's what I pay for. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's it's kind funny. of expensive. I, it's not, it's not cheap. It isn't. I, Cause I remember back in, I mean, I've been a designer for a long time and back in the day you, you download, you could buy the software. It was like a hundred bucks and you bought. The software and that's it. That's year. all you needed to do. Yeah. You have it yeah. forever. Yeah. And I, I, and then I had a buddy who was, really good at, I don't know, pirating things. And for, for a minute there, um, he was able to get whatever you wanted to download programs, but now it's all cloud-based access with a monthly yeah. fee, which makes sense for their business model for sure. Um, and but, for their updates and everything yeah. too. Um, but yeah, that, there's other stuff you could do like, uh, photography wise. Like if you're editing stills, I don't think anything's going to be better than Adobe. Uh, as far as editing video, there's definitely cheaper options that are just as good. A lot of people use DaVinci Resolve, uh, which has a free version. Um, and it's, it's pretty capable. I mean, they've, they've edited, uh, entire, uh, cinematic movies that, you know, fully commercial, you know, well-produced movies with that. And, it does just about everything that uh, that Adobe Premiere can do. It's just uh, if you want the full version, of course, you have to pay for it. But the, the the free version is still it's it's still pretty capable. Yeah, I'm a big advocate for you know the tools that you're going to use on a consistent basis. Like get the right tools. It's all mm-hmm. it's kind of the same thing. You're going to go dig in the yard. You know it's so much harder to try and accomplish something without the right tools. So it's the same thing. Like get, go get the right tools. And if they cost money, like pay, pay those creators, you know, for the tool that you need. I think the the trap you can get into is buying either duplicate tools or tools that you're not going to use. And then you're just kind of throwing money away. So like, for example, your money's well spent in Adobe because you're utilizing that tool and multiples of their tools yeah. Right. Keeping um, it all in their ecosystem. Day. I like that. I like how everything yeah. can just be transferred over from yeah, one platform yeah. to another. I mean, I, I think the same thing when it comes to audio and I think the same thing when it comes to graphic design. Mm-hmm. Although I've gotten away from the Adobe suite, which is interesting and, and was just 
revisiting it a little bit for their audio tools. But, um, I, uh, I ended up going, uh, you know, a different route for a while, um, with a, with a program called sketch, uh, which I really enjoyed for design, um, from a vector design perspective. And it was kind of the new, newer thing on the block a while ago. Uh, and I enjoyed it and it kind of pushed me out of the Adobe ecosystem. And now I'm kind of going back to the Adobe ecosystem for some of the other tools they have. So like I said, I'm a big advocate for, you know, spend money on the tools that you're going to use. Just don't buy a bunch of duplicates and hack together free versions because it just creates a, a you know, a ton more work for you. If you, if you can just pay, you know, the money that you, if you have the money to pay, go mm-hmm. for it because I agree. If you're going to do something, go all the way, you know? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Like, but yeah. you know, you're going to get a bathroom, make it a scuba bathroom. Yeah. Like that's, that's so much. <laughs> Go all the way. Don't go halfway. Yeah. Right. That's right, everybody. Get a rebreather. If you're going to scuba dive, just go rebreather. <laughs> I've heard. I've heard people like. There, there's this big thing about like people that are starting out. I think it's more popular in Europe than it is in the U.S. But when you're buying your first kit for diving, like you're out of your open water, that a lot of people go out, end up buying a full set of doubles to start with, but then they break the doubles down or they don't assemble them. But then they have the valves and the manifold for later type of thing. And that that's a very popular kind of sales technique. Um, yeah. And I don't think it's a bad Let's idea. I actually think it's a, it's, a, it's a good idea. It saves you money in the long run, to be honest with you, because you're not buying new valves and, and things. But it's an interesting concept, right? Yeah. So why, why not? You know, why not just start with the re- open water yeah. rebreather? Like, For the record, I'm com- completely joking about that. But yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Me too. Me too. I feel like, like I just... Why not start open water with it? like rebreather and scooter? Like, yeah. and why not just, you know, run the entire open water course with a blindfolded mask and on a line? Like just, just start that way. And then you'll really weed out the people that want to dive versus the people that are, are going to, you know, exit out of the, the industry quickly. Um, okay, good. So I think, I think some of the, I want to capture this photo takes a lot of planning from a, from a rig perspective, um, a lighting, even time of day and environmental perspective. And there's ways to accomplish that, which is awesome. What about we're going to a place we've never been before. Right. And we're, we're really trying to document what we find. Yeah. How do you plan for that? I mean, are, you know, it, you know, there, and, and let, let's just start from like, it's never the case that you know nothing, but let's just assume we know nothing. Like when we went into the Frio, for example, together, um, and, and we did that little expedition, we knew it was a riverbed, right? And we knew generally that, you know, it was going to be riverbed and, possibly we would find vents, which, you know, we were, we were looking for in some ways. So there could be flow, but we really had no idea what possibly could be awaiting us in that, in that dive. Um, yet we wanted to capture photo and video of what was under there, um, you know, to be able to bring back. So how do you plan from a photography perspective in kind of the unknown environment, what are you bringing? What are you, you know, gonna? Are you bringing those cheap sixty dollars Amazon lights? <laughs> yeah. uh, are you bringing, you know, the 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 um, wide angle lens, the the macro lens? Kind of how are you? How are you planning for those dives? 
Ironically, that was when we did that. That was a trip when I borrowed uh, Jacob's big blue lights, which is what inspired me to buy my own my own set. And uh, no, in, in, on a trip like that, like the way I would plan a trip like that is to I would go wide because you're trying to document the environment. Um, there's all sorts of fauna there that you probably want to document too, but that's unfortunately gonna have to involve a separate dive where you're set up for macro. Uh, maybe if you want to shoot all those uh, uh, red-throated uh, uh, darters or, you know, whatever might be living there that's a little tiny fish. Uh, maybe there's salamanders there. I, I doubt it. Um, but, yeah, if there is any sort of microfauna, that's going to take its own dive. Uh, but you probably want to start with wide so you can document, you know, what that environment looks like. Um, like you said, if you find uh, vents or, you know, even an opening, um, you know, you're, you're going to want to, Gonna want to shoot wide for that, and uh, the coolest thing is to take you know take one of the divers that's with you in your group and um, uh, frame like a really good uh, really good composition of this this beautiful place that you found, and you could use that diver as a method for showing scale, and that's that's one of the things that I really like to do um, in landscape photography. They call it a, a little person big world, uh, basically like. Mm. Uh, a mountain or a hilltop with a little guy standing on top of it. And it kind of shows you how big that environment is. You could do the same thing underwater. Uh, same with those, those, that, that split shot that I took there in the Frio river where Shunk Fei is, is over the edge of that little drop off. And then you see the Valley behind him up on the, the top side of that photograph. Um, I, I really like that one, but that's how I personally would, you know, w- would prepare to go into an environment like that. There are people that love macro and, and specifically only shoot that. So I can see why some people would choose to go macro instead. But for me, if I'm experiencing a place for the first time um, and we don't even know what's there, I would personally go wide. Yeah. And I think you bring up an important point is, is if you're able to, which is not always the case, but if you're able to, in the expedition planning, plan multiple dives. So, for example, our, our dive in that Frio was like two and a half hours straight. Like until mm-hmm. we hit the hit the end and turned around, right? So it wasn't really like we could plan to stage a bottle switch and, and gear switch at the end of that line because there's nothing there, right? So it was yeah. like we have to go back to where we started, but we could have planned multiple days, right? And so like, you know, some of the thinking there is is to be able to do a first dive with like a GoPro or something and and just go through and say, well, what would be interesting? What do we want to document? You know, review that video that night or at the end of those dives and be able to say, okay, this is, let's do a macro dive next because these things I think are really important to capture. Or let's do a a wide angle dive and plan some of these shots out. Because then you have a camera that you can review that isn't necessarily, you know, you're shooting the video in order to share it, but you're shooting the video in order to inform your next steps, right? So mm-hmm. if you can do something like that, um, which is not always possible, then that's then it's great, right? Then it's great to to be able to make a really strong plan for how you're going to approach documenting that place. But but things like you know when we discovered the truck <laughs> at the bottom yeah, of the yeah. lake, there's no planning for it, right? Yeah. We had no idea it was there, and then all of a sudden, well, hey, what's that thing? And in that case, a GoPro did an excellent job. That's all you needed. It, it yeah, was, exactly. uh, it showed what it was, you know, that it was there. Um, you can hand that video around. People can ID it and be like, oh, that's an 87 whatever, you know. And um, th- that, that was a pretty interesting dive when we found that truck. Yeah. Why, why don't you tell the story? Because I think, I don't think it's been told yet on the show. 
Yeah, no. So that that's an area in Canyon Lake. Um, I'll just go ahead and blow up the location. Uh, it's it's undivable right now because the lake is so low. It's really we we tried we 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 dove it the other weekend, um, but the lake was so low we had to literally climb down um, some pretty sketchy rocks just to even get to the water. And you know this is what back back mount doubles and everything. It wasn't wasn't too much fun. Uh, the water level definitely needs to be higher uh, for this to be enjoyable. But it's a really cool place otherwise. Uh, when the lake is is filled to the level that it's supposed to be at, uh, what you're looking at is kind of a peninsula that sticks out in the lake. And on one side of that is going to be like a really shallow uh, beach that everybody swims on. And it's just a nice gentle slope. On the other side is just a sheer drop-off that goes underwater. It has these... Uh, it's all limestone. Um, you know, the, before it was a lake, the, the Guadalupe River runs through there and carves out this, you know, kind of canyon, canyon-like feature that created all these beautiful limestone overhangs. Uh, and it's really cliffy, a lot of grottos. And the most fun part about this this dive site is when you get to the bottom of that, um, it's just filled full of these dead trees. Uh, it's all pecan and oak trees that uh, are still there from how how old is the lake? 60 years Mm-hmm. And uh, like yeah, that. they're all still there. So you have this really spooky looking underwater forest uh, that's at the bottom of these cliffs with all these, you know, real beautiful features. And uh, it's a place that I discovered a, a, a few years ago. I, I didn't personally discover it, but I discovered it for myself a few years, a few years back and really thought it was a cool dive site. And I've always enjoyed taking people there and uh, when Jay started getting the group together, it's like, oh, I got to show these guys this spot. You know, they, they would probably really enjoy diving in this really unique location. And Jay, I'm not sure, was that like your second dive out there? Or was that the first yeah, time something you like dove that. out there? No, I think it was second, second time, something yeah, like second, that. Yeah, second or so. But yeah, we were just doing a, um, you know, kind of a routine dive. And uh, this was towards the beginning when we found this truck. But we just kind of dropped down. And uh, uh, I think I was laying like some sort of line for surveying. And at the bottom of that spot, uh, the truck was just right there. And I've, I've dove there a lot, and I've never seen that truck before. Uh, but I think what happens is the thermocline kind of will adjust. You know, as you get deeper into the summer, the thermocline will get lower. And there's always a cloud of silt that hangs out right where the, the water changes temperature and creates like a little layer of fog that you can't see through. And mm-hmm. it was low enough at that point to where you can see the truck. And I wasn't the first one that saw it. Everybody that was diving with me found it first. Um, but yeah, everybody just kind of surrounding this truck, shining their lights on it and uh, spent a lot of time looking at it. And just the reason why it's so interesting is because you have to wonder, it's like, why is this truck here? There's no roads nearby. Um, how did it get here? <laughs> it's, at the, mm-hmm. it's at the bottom of a, what, a 60 foot drop box off? Was my, was What's my in thought? the glove box? Yeah. <laughs> It looks like it's from the early 90s, and I'm sure it was just some drunk people, maybe. I don't know. Maybe they forgot to put on the parking brake, and it rolled down the hill up on top of the cliff. Um, I bet it was an interesting afternoon, though, whenever, you know, however it ended up in that lake. Um, but, uh, yeah, we we couldn't see the license plate. It was completely buried, and um, it's been there so long that the interior of the truck is completely filled full of rocks, too. So you couldn't open up the glove box or anything like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but we've made plans on going back and I've, I've been back a lot of times after that. It's just that the viz was never good enough in that, that one spot to, you know, really do any work on that truck. And yeah. I've, I've been talking to a lot of people about it since then. And a lot of people that I know have also found that truck, uh, either before or after we've been there. 
And uh, it, it's just kind of interesting, though. It's kind of one of those, those little urban legends, you know, what, why is this truck here? How long <laughs> yeah. has it been here? I just, I, yeah. I would love to, I, I would love to just, you know, know the story behind it. Know, at least know who it belonged to and how long ago it was lost. See, I, I think if you knew, it would take some of the mystery out of it, though. Because we, we could say, like, would, yeah. you know, it was it was from the founder of Bucky's, you know, and he had a you argument know, it, with his founders. You know, <laughs> <laughs> whatever, you could create whatever story you it want. It was probably like, the typical, awesome. we stole this truck, we joy, you know, took it on a joy ride and ran it yeah. into the lake so we don't get caught. It's, it's probably the typical thing like that, to be honest. Yeah. Well, and, and that wasn't the only truck you found, because I was, I was on that, but I wasn't on the other one. Oh wait a minute! Um, because you guys right. found you whole, on that one. I get all these dives blended together. Yeah, I wasn't I on the one that actually got uh, yanked out by the police. So tell that story too, because that's interesting. Yeah, so um, I was uh, on a dive with some other dive buddies, and we so were our team, right? That's yeah, the, yeah, the, yeah, the, the yeah. Whole team, yeah, exactly. Yeah, um, I don't want to mention names on this one, but so with some individuals um came across this truck the individuals as with didn't want to have anything to do with it because it's pretty obvious why it was there is definitely part of a crime um it looked really uh suspicious because it was upside down uh, all the fabric and everything was still in the seats the truck looked really fresh like it, it, it wasn't there for very long and um me being the curious individual that i am you know wanted to learn a whole lot more about this so I came back with another friend of mine that um, is all about it. He has a YouTube channel too. And, you know, we, we both thought, well, we'll just make videos about this. It'll be a lot of fun. We'll, you know, use each other's footage. And, um, you know, for us cinematic nerds, we, we love that, you know, multiple camera angles. Uh, but uh, so we came back the next weekend. I came back with my other friend and, and that's what we did. So uh, we pulled up to the parking lot. It turns out you're not allowed to dive there because it's an active boat ramp. So a police yeah. officer stopped us on our way to the water and told us that we couldn't dive. And we explained to him, it's like, hey, look, we're here because we found a truck last weekend, I guess, as we're diving illegally. And it's definitely stolen. It's definitely not a part of this old dive park that's kind of off to the side of where the boat ramp is. And uh, he was pretty interested. He's like, OK, I, I, I definitely, you know, he, he was telling us, he's like, I definitely want to, you know, know more about this. So. I'll go ahead and stop the boat traffic. I'll let you guys go down real quick. Just go down quick enough to see the license plate number. If you could bring back me the plate number, um, that'll be amazing. So we did that. We went down and um, got the plate numbers, brought that info back up to the police officer. And he went over to his uh, car, called it in on the radio and uh, told him that it was definitely reported stolen. And it was report reported stolen two years before that date um two years before last august so i guess wow. you know whoever stole it ditched it in summer of 2020 um is what i'm assuming and you can tell uh just by the way it was sitting there that they just they they ran it straight down the boat ramp and i guess it swamped full of water drifted for a little bit and sunk you know in about 30 feet of water it wasn't wasn't very deep um but yeah when they told him it was stolen he um he got real excited. He called in what they call a heavy rotational, I guess, which is a type of truck, like a huge tow truck. Um, and they <laughs> they backed it up to the boat ramp. They're like, okay, now you guys got to go back down there and hook up the chains. Now salvage divers. didn't even have professional divers or anything do this. They just had us do it. Hmm. And uh, we, we had a blast, though. It was it was so much fun. We filmed the whole process. I even had my drone up in the air, you know, as we're in the water messing around with it. 
And uh, so we, we swam the chains out there, hooked them up, and they ripped that thing out of the water right there that afternoon. And we got to look around in it, you know, as they pulled it out. And you can look in the floorboard of the truck and you'd see how they rigged up the cables to push the gas pedal down, I guess, so mm. they can, you know, have it run itself into the water. And uh, there was an ID inside of it, too. There was a driver's license inside the glove box. And they contacted the owner. He didn't have insurance on it, so we know it was not <laughs> we know it was not insurance <laughs> fraud. And he didn't want it anymore either. So they uh um they, they trashed it. But yeah, I just thought that was uh that was a pretty fun, fun way to burn off an afternoon, I guess. There you go. Yeah. See, if photography pays off, you become uh <laughs> unsolved mysteries. Yeah. That, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Episode shows up. Well, good. I mean, this has been fun. I think, I think, uh, there's obviously tons more that you can cover, but I think planning for the unknown is always planning for the unknown, you know, take, take what you, I always kind of say, I'd rather have it with me, not on the dive, but at the dive site than not. And cause you never know. And so it's always that try it, you know, do, do an extra, uh, you know, a quick run where you're figuring out what the plan's going to be and then go get the right gear, bring that in the water and do the dive. I think what you want to avoid, and I would, I think Scott's saying the same thing here is don't take everything under the water, right? Don't bring the dome port and the, you know, second rig with the macro lens and and 17 lights. And, you know, I think you want to bring what you need for the dive. And if you don't know what you need, then either do a quick, you know, look dive, um, a dip dive that, that can actually tell you what you need or, you know, bring, make a choice, bring the, the wide angle, um, as Scott was saying and, and make do with that. You know, there's a solution. You can use what's called wet lenses to, uh, go down there with both. You can, you know, flip a macro lens on top of your port and then you can flip that over and put a dome port on top of that. It does have a layer of water in between the lens and the actual port. Um, and some people like that, some people don't, but it does give you the chance to go down with both. I don't use that equipment. Um, I like to shoot. I like to ha- always have the option of shooting split shots, and you can't do that with wet lenses. But um, yeah, for all you uh, yeah. photography nerds that are screaming to yourselves right now, what about wet lenses? I just wanted to mention that real quick. There you go. See, I had no idea they existed. So shows shows how much I know. Well, awesome. Um, well, Scott, it has been a blast having you on these three episodes, um, and thank you for for coming on the show, sharing your knowledge and stories and laughs and all that stuff obviously you know you and i've done a lot of diving together and uh it's always fun to catch up and and talk about old times and plan for future times i know uh, you just invited me out on a trip that uh, i can't make unfortunately but uh, but man i'm uh, excited to to get back in the water together and then you know that our house is always open to come dive uh, the kelp beds out here in catalina that's those are some amazing Probably amazing photos and amazing video. Definitely um, need to do that. Yeah. Both. So yeah, come haven't on been out there yet. The, the get a break from that hot hot Texas heat. And enjoy some <laughs> Southern California weather. Uh, it's been I think on the surface sixties, mid sixties at depth. I saw the other day, you know, mid to higher fifties. Um, really? So there's a thermal climb. Uh, or is, is. It, is it like a there gradual is. change? It's a gradual change. It's not like huh. the lake where, um, you know, it's not necessarily a, a, a media. I mean, you know, in, in the summer in the lake, it's like if you're in a wetsuit, 
It's like, you know exactly when you hit that thermocline because it's like a five to 10 degree dip mm-hmm. immediately. You're just like, oh, now I'm cold. It feels nice. Uh, and I remember in the middle of the summer in that Texas heat, you would just be waiting for that thermocline because your body hasn't felt cool for so long, like naturally cool. So, but yeah, that's, uh, and then I think, um, I think, you know, it's a fall is a pretty incredible time to dive out here as well. I'm still learning my way around here, but we'll plan those trips, but just want to say thank you for coming on the show. Um, again, if you want to reach out to Scott, um, maybe go shoot some photos with him, see some of his work, watch some of his YouTube videos, Scott, where can they find you? Uh, my YouTube channel is Scott Bauer below and, uh, Instagram is the same thing. Yeah. So check out Scott, Scott Bauer below on Instagram or on his YouTube channel and reach out, let him know, uh, what you think about these episodes. Who knows if you're in, um, Texas or Roatan or flower gardens or wherever you are, you might be on the boat with Scott. So, uh, get to know him. Amazing person, uh, first and foremost. And a great diver, great photographer, and looking forward to, Scott, more of the things that you produce. I saw some of the photos from Flower Gardens and the video that you did about uh, the boat and, and the operation there and just really, really nice work. So share some of that stuff on uh, on the, the dive table as well so that people can, can find you and uh, would love to connect with you. But just thank you for being on the show, and thanks for everything that you brought to the last three episodes. Sounds good. Well, thanks for having me. Any uh, any parting thoughts before we wrap this one up? No, 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 no puns. No puns today. No puns today. All right. Well, thank you out there in the Scoobiverse uh, for joining us for this episode. And we hope you come back for the next episode of The Dive Table. The Dive Table is a production of Fish Dive Surf Incorporated and a member of the Fish Dive Surf Podcast Network. You can find out more at www.fishdivesurf.com.